Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, I'm going to be interviewing one of my heroes, a gentleman who founded a fantastic organization that helps animals. It's called Mercy for Animals. As you, you know, listen to the show before, you know that I'm very passionate about animal rights, and I can't express how important I feel this is, that all living beings are treated with respect and treated with compassion. There are those out there who say, well, I'm pro-life, and yet they're completely content with allowing billions of animals to be tortured and to suffer needlessly for human consumption. An animal is a sentient being just like every other being out there. It is not there for us to pick up and to consume and to utilize. We People are just so selfish in this society, I feel where they just look at everything as something that, what is it to benefit them? Animals are, I think, are wonderful, beautiful creatures, and I feel that you can really gauge a person based on how they treat an animal. Most sociopaths and serial killers are tortured and harmed animals, and if you look at society, collectively speaking, a lot of people are participating in torture and killing of animals. Whether or not they don't choose to ignore it or not, I just think it's horrible. And the person we're going to have on the show tonight is really doing a phenomenal work. If you aren't aware, I am just about vegan. When I say just about vegan, this means that I, I eat pizza. That's my that's my Achilles heel. And I'm willing to admit that it's a work in progress. But for a long time, I ate meat. And one of my turning points was when I started seeing how the animals were being treated, how the, the horrible, deplorable conditions animals, were, were, the way they were being treated in factory farms, and just the, the, the torture and just sheer just disregard for them, it just made me sick. And as time progressed, I started becoming sensitive to what I was eating, so if I ate meat, I actually would feel uh, anxiety afterwards, and I wasn't even aware about it, but it, it started picking up, progressively speaking, to the point where I couldn't eat anything. I couldn't eat any meat at all. Couldn't, and then I, if that same thing happened with cheese, I wasn't able to handle it anymore. And I don't know why, but it happened, and I'm thankful that it happened. But this person that we're going to have on the show, this gentleman, he's got a huge heart. And before we bring him on, we're now going to go to a pre-introduction by animal rights advocate, Ms. Jane Velez Mitchell. Award-winning journalist. Hello. Best-selling author and founder of JaneUnchained.com. Ms. Jane Velez Mitchell, it is a great honor, as always, to be speaking with you. Welcome to the program. Can you please tell us about... Nathan Runkle and Mercy for Animals. Well, Nathan Runkle is a genius, and he is one of the most brilliant young men that I have ever met. I'm very honored that back when I had a national show on cable, I was able to have him on when he was uh, just um, really starting um, to turn Mercy for Animals into the powerhouse, the global powerhouse that it is today. And today it is one of the leading animal rights organizations right up there with PETA and the Humane Society, and it is doing the hard work. Mercy for Animals gets undercover investigators to go into factory farms and document what the guy doesn't want us to see. 
heroes, and I met them personally at the gala, um, risk their lot because if they're discovered with these hidden cameras, um, you don't know what could happen to them. And they don't just go in for one day. They go in day after day. These people truly, truly put their lives on the line, um, and Nathan makes it all happen. I mean, he coordinates this absolutely incredible coordination that goes into this. It's mind-boggling. On top of that, they have this huge social media operation that, you know, takes the videos that they that they get of, of animals being beaten and cats ready without anesthesia and have their beaks seared and um, babies being ripped from their mothers so that we can steal the milk and drink the milk for ourselves. Think about that. If we're drinking the milk, that means the baby calf can't be near the mom because the baby calf would drink the milk. Every mother and child want to be together. Every mother wants to be with her child, every child wants to be with his or her mother. And so uh, this is institutionalized cruelty, but they don't want you to see that. They create these happy cow, you know, fairy tales that are so far from the truth. And, um, I mean, in California right now, we've got cows dropping by the thousands of the heat to the point where they have to be buried in mass graves. Does that sound like happy cows come from California? I mean, we're being lied to. And there's a truth teller, and that truth teller is Nathan Runkle and his incredible team. Uh, I really uh, have met so many people over the course of my life as a journalist for four decades, and I can say uh, on one hand, two hands, there are people when I look at them, I go, these, these are the Martin Luther Kings, these are the Harriet Tubmans, and Nathan Runkle is that person. Well, Ms. Jane Velez Mitchell, I want to thank you so much for that warm introduction to Nathan. We look forward to having him on, who will be on featured on shortly. To learn more about Jane and her passionate animal rights advocacy work, which I love. She's doing a great, great job. Please go to JaneUnchained.com. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you, Ryan, for your work. Joining us now is Mr. Nathan Runkle, founder and president of Mercy for Animals. You can learn more about him by going to his website at mercyforanimals.com. Actually, mercyforanimals.org. Nathan is also author of a new book, Mercy for Animals, One Man's Quest to Inspire Compassion and Improve the Lives of Farm Animals. Mr. Uncle, it is a great honor to have you with us today. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's my honor. Got it. Mr. Uncle, we've talked so much on our show about animal rights and why... There should be such a need to, you know, provide compassion. Can you please tell us about what Mercy for Animals does, Mercy for Animals does? Yeah, absolutely. Our mission is to prevent cruelty to farmed animals and promote compassionate food choices and policies. You know, in, in the U.S. alone, over 9 billion animals are raised and killed under some of the most horrific conditions imaginable for meat, dairy, and eggs every year. These are animals with unique personalities and emotions, the whole range from love to fear to sadness to grief, yet they are treated as inanimate objects. They are crammed in cages where they can't even turn around or lie down comfortably. Uh, They're mutilated without any painkillers. They're torn away from their families, and they are brutally slaughtered. So Mercy for Animals seeks to give these animals who oftentimes suffer in silence a voice. And we do that through four program areas. Uh, One is undercover investigations. We send people into factory farms and slaughterhouses wired with pinhole-sized hidden cameras to pull back the curtain and to show people 
how these animals are just treated horrifically from the moment that they're born until the moment that they die. We also work to pressure big corporations, everyone from Walmart to McDonald's, to move away from the worst factory farm practices, things like mutilating piglets without pain relief, cutting the tails off of cows, cramming hens into cages where they can't spread their wings. And we also work through legal advocacy, um, working to implement stronger laws to provide these animals with at least some basic protection and to prosecute those who violate the few laws that we do have on the books. And finally, we work through education, uh, teaching people who farmed animals are, the fact that they are just as curious and intelligent and sociable as the dogs and cats that so many of us know and love and share our homes with, and encouraging people to move away from a meat-centered diet towards a compassionate and humane uh, plant-based diet. So that is what Mercy for Animals is, and that is why we are here, and we work on a global level. Uh, we're active in six countries right now, um, and we are working to bring about a compassionate future. That's fantastic. I'm really happy and thankful that for what you're doing. And why is it that you've done so many of these undercover videos and you can show them to people? And most times they don't want to watch it. They just say, I don't want to watch it. No, I want to have my eggs. So I want to have my bacon. What is it about these videos that doesn't completely engulf most people to, to all of a sudden turn around? How can these videos be out there, people aware that they're out there, and then still not want to make a conscious decision not to eat meat or not to eat dairy? Well, I think you're right. A lot of people uh, don't want to watch these videos because they understand that factory farming is, is bad, but they don't really know the details of how bad it is. I think that this is a symptom of willful ignorance. Um, you know, ignorance is bliss, but it's not bliss for the animals um, who are suffering as a result of it. Uh, so I think that a lot of people are, are very compassionate towards animals. They, they care deeply about them, but they don't want to be emotionally affected by what they see. And once you, once you see animals having their throats while they're still conscious, being slammed headfirst into the ground, having parts of their bodies cut off, um, these aren't things that you can unsee. So, um, you know, I, I think that that many people uh, realize that once they're confronted with the, the cruel reality, um, with that comes an obligation to uh, make compassionate choices. Now, from our standpoint, we believe that it is a moral obligation for consumers to know where their food is coming from so that they can make informed decisions. And most people would say that they are opposed to cramming chickens for eggs into cages the size of a file cabinet drawer with six other birds to the point where they can't spread their wings, they can't even walk. Yet, most people are willing to go to the grocery store and buy neatly packaged eggs that say farm fresh on them that come from birds that are kept in these cruel conditions. Now, to us, that is really moral hypocrisy. You know, if we wouldn't in good conscience treat animals in the way that we know that they are abused and exploited and slaughtered for meat and dairy and eggs, then we shouldn't, in good conscience, pay other people to carry out these atrocities on our behalf. And like it or not, that is the truth of what we are doing when we eat 
these products from animals raised on factory farms. This is an issue that we cannot be neutral on. We uh, have to make choices every time that we eat, and we can choose kindness over cruelty, or we can choose cruelty over kindness. But we all eat, and we all have to make food choices. So we cannot be neutral on this issue. Um, and it's never been easier to move towards a plant-based diet, to have uh, you know, all of the flavors that you love without the suffering. Um, you know, we, we're really choiceitarians now, um, and we can, um, you know, choose to make the world a kinder place every time that we sit down to eat, and that's really what we're advocating for. Thanks, Nathan. And I want to bring to our audience's attention that I became uh, from vegetarian first and vegan, and I'm now able to enjoy, I'd say, just about if not all of the flavors and sensations through vegan-based uh, products and foods that I have previously with um, meat. And one of the – I mean, there are a lot of great products that are out there, and I'll put some of them mm -hmm. on our site. But I think you're absolutely right that, you know, you people, you have such you have such a great choice. Nathan, what would you say – how are you guys able to function and get your word out when you have these laws called ag-gag laws, which actually prosecute – the whistleblowers prosecute people for doing undercover video. How are you able to continue to, you know, get information out with those laws hanging over you? Yeah. So, you know, for listeners that aren't familiar with ag-gag laws, these are um, bills uh, that were introduced, that started being introduced really in their current form around 2011. Since then, about half of the states have introduced these, um, these, these laws that essentially seek, seek to make it a crime just to take a photograph or a video inside of a factory farm or slaughterhouse. And for some of these bills and laws, the crime for someone who takes a photograph of someone torturing an animal is carries a harsher penalty than the, than the person torturing the animal uh, does. And to us, that is just absolutely absurd. You know, these laws are uh, a violation of freedom of speech, of freedom of press, and they not only harm animals by trying to intimidate and silence whistleblowers, but they also pose a real threat to democracy um, and to uh, food safety, you know, because when, when you're not able to expose wrongdoing and violations and problems, um, animals don't only suffer, but as I said, our food safety suffers and also conditions for workers suffer. Our environment suffers. So th this is why there's such a wide coalition of dozens and dozens of organizations, from environmental organizations to worker organizations to journalist organizations, that oppose these ag-gag laws. And two of these ag-gag laws have now been struck down by judges as being unconstitutional. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what does this industry have to hide if they are willing to go to such despicable lengths? to criminalize the act of simply documenting what's happening inside their facilities. You know, any ethically run company would welcome with open arms the media, journalists, consumers to come and see how they operate. They would be proud of what they're doing. But the exact opposite is happening within the meat industry and the dairy industry. And many of these ag-gag laws have been proposed and pushed through as a direct result of investigations that Mercy for Animals has done. And I talk about this um, in my book. I talk about not only the investigations, but then also, you know, this, this really despicable attempt um, by 
pro-factory farm legislators um, to, to push these bills through. And it has um, had a negative impact on our investigative work. You know, um, there are states where we will not currently do undercover investigations because these laws are in effect. Um, so we are left to focus on other areas where we are still able to go in and um, do these investigations and use them to help push for change on a national level. If you can look at society or look at maybe a little historical um, analysis of people, mm-hmm. and when society has finally reached that tipping point when they change, what do you think it's going to take to have a change on a large enough scale to actually kind of stamping it to start to reverse the tide against factory farming and against the, the torture of these animals? I think it's going to uh, take a number of things, and I think that that the the it's already set into motion. Um, you know, if, if you look at the generational shift that is happening, um, it's very clearly in the direction of supporting animal rights. There was a, a recent study done that found that 1% of baby boomers identify as vegetarian, 4% of Gen Xers identify as vegetarian, but a whopping 12% of millennials identify as vegetarian. So the, the trajectory is very clear. And I think if we look back um, at, at history, we oftentimes can judge um, the, the progression of social justice issues, and I very much view animal protection as a social justice issue. You can view these through the generational lens. You know, if you look at um, the, the women's suffrage movement, if you look at civil rights, if you look at the struggle for LGBT equality, you know, m- much of this um, progressed generationally, and I think we're seeing that now with with animal rights. Um, I think that social media um, is is really opening the door for a much needed discussion, um, evening the yeah, making the, the playing fields far more even in terms of access to information about what's truly happening. Um, I think what's also going to help change this is work in uh, changing the laws. And unfortunately, we're just not there's no clear path forward for any federal changes for farm animals currently, but we are seeing changes on a state level. We're seeing ballot initiatives that are banning the worst intensive confinement practices. They're banning the sale of meat and eggs from animals kept in tiny cages. Um, This is powerful, but there are limits to this. You know, only about half of the states in this country have a ballot initiative process. The others don't, and including uh, large agriculture areas like Iowa, where most of these um, these animals are being raised, but I think one of the 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 key factors that's going to to really tip this um, in a positive direction is innovation in the food space. And I talk about this in in my book as well, the future of food and how we can move towards a humane economy. You know, we're not looking to to put people out of business. We're looking to shift business and careers and jobs and industry in a humane and sustainable way. And I talk in the book about cellular agriculture, literally taking a harmless biopsy of stem cells from a living animal, growing it in a suitable medium in a bioreactor like like a brewery, and this is already being done. Um, And this technology alone has the potential to grow real meat without the murder, without animals um, even being slaughtered or raised um, in factory farm conditions. And it's, it's called clean meat because 
it also will be free of many of the pathogens that we find in meat products today. You know, factory farms are filthy environments. You have animals that are kicking and screaming and defecating through the process. You know, many chickens go into these huge, really fecal baths of hot water um, that removes their feathers. And this is why we oftentimes find camelobacter and salmonella and E. coli and things in animal foods. With clean meat, you're bypassing all of that. You're growing it in a sterile environment, so it's much safer. And it's also much much better for our environment. Early studies suggest that it could take 90% less land, energy, water to produce clean meat. So, you know, if we look back to the days when horses were forced into labor and pulling heavy carts on busy streets in the searing hot uh, summers and the freezing cold winters, what really changed the game wasn't just an ethical uprising. It was the invention of the Model T, and it was coming up with a better way of transportation. Now, of course, there were problems with Model Ts, but now we're moving towards Teslas and things that are far more sustainable. It was a disruptive, innovative approach that made the horse and buggy seem very outdated and inefficient. And I think that with the rise of clean meat and also plant-based proteins, which are already widely available, um, these alternatives are already being viewed, and rightfully so, as not only better for animals, but better for our own health, better for the environment, and quite frankly, far more efficient, you know, to just directly cultivate cells and grow them versus feeding animals, raising them. You know, that takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of feed. Um, cellular agriculture can be done in a much faster way um, with much less waste happening. So to me, innovation in the food space uh, is, is one that gives me the most hope. You know, there's now vegan burgers on the market that bleed with heme made from yeast, uh, the heme which is in blood. Um, you know, there's the Beyond Burger now. There's, there's um, artisanal cheeses being made out of cashews. Um, there's just an incredible explosion in this market. And while dairy uh, demand is going down, uh, dairy-free beverages um, like rice milk, almond milk, soy milk are continuing to go up. So um, this gives me a lot of hope for the future. And quite frankly, we're living on borrowed time right now with climate change and the increasing threat that it poses and the rising human population expected to reach 9 billion by 2050. We simply cannot feed the growing population on on a traditional animal meat-based diet. It is too resource intensive and it causes too much pollution and too much destruction. So, um, you know, I think that there is a clear path forward here, but we have to seize the moment. We need to, you know, move in this direction for a humane and sustainable economy. Factory farming has a direct impact on a lot of the, the climate, and especially when you have these hog farms. I live in uh, the state of North Carolina, and they, if there's 10 million hogs that are out there, and it's having a catastrophic impact on our local communities, people getting really sick. So is there any way to – can you please discuss about how factory farming, how much waste is produced, and how, um, from your perspective, that is actually impacting the environment for the worse? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mentioned 9 billion animals being raised and killed every year for food in the United States. Well, each one of these 9 billion animals, which is more than the entire global human population uh, in the United States every year, um, they produce waste. You know, these animals are eating feed constantly to grow, and then they go to slaughter. 
And in the case of cows and pigs, you know, for example, they're producing an incredible amount of waste. And in these concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs, as they're referred to by the government or factory farms, you can have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of these animals all in one place. And unlike human waste, it is not monitored in the same way. It doesn't have the same regulations um, as, as we have for how human waste must be handled and dispensed. So around these factory farms, there are huge manure lagoons that are literally filled with animal waste. And in such high quantities, there's a lot of methane. It is um, incredibly toxic. Now, what do you do with all of this waste? Well, they spray some of it onto open fields as fertilizer, um, but there, there's far more than that will allow uh, or that will take. So oftentimes it's overspread. Uh, many times it gets into local groundwater, you know, communities. And, and, and oftentimes these factory farms are built in um, underprivileged communities of color. Um, it's, cheap, it's cheap land, and they build these factory farms, and then the people that live around them suffer tremendously. They suffer from respiratory problems, asthma, um, problems breathing. Their water becomes contaminated and they can't drink it. They have fly infestation. And then sometimes these manure lagoons will break or there will be floods um, and it will get into the nearby creeks and streams, which lead to huge, devastating fish kills. It just completely kills all life that's in um, these creeks and streams, you know, hundreds of thousands of fish um, being killed. So most people don't think about the other effects of animal agriculture. And, you know, the animals are certainly victims, but our environment suffers and the people that live around these factory farms suffer. I know because I was born and raised on a farm in Ohio, and I saw the effects of these huge egg farms and these huge dairy farms and these huge pig farms on these communities. You know, when a factory farm comes up, people don't celebrate. They go and they try to prevent them from coming into their community because their property value goes down. It causes health problems for people. Um, nobody wants to live next to a factory farm. And if you don't want to live next to a factory farm, then we shouldn't be buying these products and supporting them and essentially having these facilities built next to someone else's house. And can you please, I mean, I read in your book, it was painful to read, but can you please talk about what was the spark that led you on this path that really kind of changed your whole perspective on how um, uh, animals, and I remember reading about your dream that you actually dreamt that you were a cow at one point, and you actually went through what a cow went through, but is there any possibility to talk about that dream and talk about um, your, your, the turning point for you? Yeah, you know, so, so as I said, I was... I was born on a couch in a farming community of less than 2,000 people. I was slated to be a fifth-generation farmer. Um, most of my early childhood memories are with my grandfather and my uncle and my dad on the John Deere tractor. So that that was my starting point. And I think because of that, I had a deep connection with with the land, with the environment, and with animals. Um, you know, it was our it was our dogs and cats and horses that really first sensitized me to the needs of other animals, and again, that they had personalities and, and minds. Um, I I went on hunting trips with my uncle, and I talk about it in the book, and just always felt a natural empathy towards these animals. And I remember. The, really the one and only hunting trip I went on with my uncle, you know, him, him shooting this rabbit, us approaching this 
this rabbit was really just going about her life in the woods. And as we approached, she was still alive, um, just shaking and trembling in fear. You know, her eyes just so wide and distressed, my uncle reaching down and twisting her head off. And this was when I was six years old. And I remember just feeling terrible um, for what we had done to this this, this rabbit for, for no purpose. Um, a few years later, um, there was I was sitting um, with my family or watching the, the local news. There's a 30-second um, story that came on about people protesting the fur industry. And I remembered um, hearing the term animal rights activist for the first time and thinking there's a term for people who care about animals and actually take action to protect them. And they showed footage of animals in leg hole traps um, that were being killed for fur. And I saw that same look of fear and terror in the eyes of these raccoons and these mink um, that I saw in that rabbit. And it always stuck with me. A few months later, I uh, was at that same mall um, around Earth Day, and there was an organization with a booth set up, and I picked up brochures on factory farming. And I read about how calves are chained by their neck in veal crates. And I went vegetarian on the spot. I told my mom um, at 11 years old that I didn't want to pay someone to abuse animals on my behalf. I became more involved, um, learned more about the reality of the dairy industry and the egg industry. And when I was 15, after seeing so many of these videos taken on dairy farms uh, and knowing what, what happened to these animals, I had a dream that I was a dairy cow. And that was really the first time that I was able to put myself in the place of this animal. And it was so visceral and real. And I um, was, you know, locked in this stall. I, you know, had had my baby taken away from me. I was, I was, you know, hooked up to a milking machine. And I woke up in just this sort of panic and fear. And I, um, at that moment decided that I couldn't support this industry because it's because I had an emotional sort of personal response to what I had seen before that. Um, but the, 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 the incident that led me just a, a few weeks later to start mercy for animals, um, was that our, our local high school, um, again, in this farming community had an agriculture class and, the teacher of that class was a pig farmer. He raised over 10,000 pigs. It was a large operation. And it came time in the agriculture curriculum where the class was going to do a dissection project. So the teacher, Mr. Jenkins, decided that he would kill some piglets on his farm that morning and bring them to the class for the dissection. Um, when he arrived, um, a student went over to look in the bucket and noticed that one of the piglets was still alive. He reached in and grabbed this piglet by her hind legs, slammed her head first into the ground in an attempt to kill the piglet. She still didn't die. Her skull was fractured at this point. She was bleeding out of her mouth. She was in horrible distress. A couple of the students grabbed this piglet, left the classroom, went down the hallway to another first-year teacher who was, uh, his name was Molly, who was known as being a vegetarian who cared about animals. Molly grabbed this piglet, and with this piglet cradled in her arms, left the school, drove to the local veterinarian, and had this piglet euthanized. There was nothing that they could do at this point to help this piglet. Molly's next stop was to the local sheriff's department, where she asked for animal cruelty charges to be filed, and they were against Mr. Jenkins. It went to trial, and the very first day of that trial, the animal cruelty charges were dismissed because in Ohio, like most states, 
if something is considered standard agricultural practice, it's exempt from cruelty prosecution. And slamming baby piglets headfirst into the ground is standard agricultural practice. It is called stumping, and it takes place on pig farms all across the country. It is it is disgusting. This is why and I have disdain a, for humanity. I have a great disdain for humanity in one way. I mean, seriously, but this, what, a, what a despicable species that we are that allows us well, to Well, we're happen. certainly – you know, I, I, I think that we are capable of both despicable, cruel, sadistic acts, but I also believe that we are capable of incredible kindness, and we are capable of incredible empathy and love. Um, and I think that we really choose um, how we want to live our lives. Um, certainly in our world, uh, in our country, um, we can choose to be kind or we can choose to be cruel. And I think it really is that simple. You know, I don't think that we are inherently bad or inherently good. I think that we can choose, as I said, to um, – ease the suffering of others or impose suffering on others. And that really is what it boils down to. And to me, I know how I want to live my life and the values that I have. I want to be kind and fair. Um, and I think that extending that to, to animals says a lot about who we are as people and the world that we want to live in. Well, of all things that you've seen, what is your perspective? Um, do you mind if I ask what your spiritual beliefs are? Do you have do you have any form of spirituality? Do you believe in God? Do you, and do you, are you – I mean, what do you, how does how do your metaphysical? Do you have any spiritual loops, and how would they come into play into what you're doing? You know, I I would say that I'm a spiritual person in the sense that I'm very connected with nature. Nature, I I, I believe that we are all connected, um, and you know, I I don't I, I don't follow any religion, any specific religion. Um, I don't feel that I need to. You know, it's really Sorry. kindness is my religion and philosophy. Um, so, you know, I, I believe in being good for, for good sake. Um, and, you know, it, I, I believe that because we are all connected, you know, we are all similar in the ways that matter, and that includes animals. And I want to let everyone know that uh, Mercy for Animals, again, mercyforanimals.org, they're doing a lot of investigations, a lot of undercover investigations to, to expose what's going on. I have to say, I, my heart goes out to to you and to the private the people who are going undercover because they love animals, and yet they have yeah. to sit there and watch these animals get tortured, yeah. get killed in such brutal fashion. Do you have do these people do this knowing that they're going to have post traumatic stress disorder, or do they come back and experience forms of post traumatic stress disorder based on what they've seen? Yeah, I talk about this in the book as well. Um, we. We um, we prepare these investigators um, the best that we can. You know, we we let them know that this is not glamorous or sexy. You know, James Bond work. This is heartbreaking, dehumanizing work. Um, it's physically dangerous um, and it's emotionally traumatizing. Um, so most of the people that contact us to become investigators simply won't become investigators. It is a very very small. Um, number of individuals that are willing to make that sacrifice. And it is a sacrifice. Um, you know, you mentioned PTSD, and I talk in the book about this form of uh, perpetration-induced traumatic stress disorder, which is rampant um, in factory farms. Uh, and it's not just with investigators. It is with people that whose job it is to stand there for eight hours a day or 12 hours a day and slit the throat of animals. I mean, you can imagine – the toll that that would take or the toll of working in a, in a factory farm and your job being 
cutting off the tails of screaming piglets all day. It is traumatizing, and it is it is um, something that that leaves a mark not only on our investigators, but people that take these jobs in factory farms and slaughterhouses out of desperation. You know, most of the people that work in these facilities are undocumented workers. They take these jobs because these are the dangerous, demoralizing jobs that no American wants to take. And then they, um, because they're undocumented, have no real rights or protection. They can't speak up on their own behalf. So they um, suffer not only physical injuries, you know, slaughterhouses are one of the most dangerous jobs in the country, but they also suffer this emotional distress. And I talk about the Sinclair effect, which was a theory sort of put forward over 100 years ago by Upton Sinclair that said that, 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 that noticed that there are higher rates of violent crime um, in communities where there are slaughterhouses, where a, where a large portion of the community is employed at these slaughterhouses. And a group of psychologists looked at this and confirmed that this is, in fact, a reality because you have people that are going in and, as I said, day after day, slitting the throats of cows and pigs. They're traumatized. They come home. They're self-medicating with alcohol and drug abuse. We see increased rates of domestic violence and even homicides that are carried out in the same way in which animals are slaughtered inside of these facilities. So, uh, you know, these these workers in many ways are victims themselves. The animals certainly suffer and pay the price with their lives, but these workers lose their humanity oftentimes working inside of these environments. And to me, we have to ask ourselves, if we want to be a civilized and moral and ethical society, do, do slaughterhouses have a place in a society like that? Not only because of the toll that they take on animals, but because it is essentially impossible to be a, a connected um, human being when your day is based around violence. And to me, I know that the answer is no. Um, slaughterhouses don't have a place in a civilized society. Nathan, as of right now, what are a couple of things that people can do not only to help Mercy for Animals, but to, to help your cause altogether, help the cause uh, for animals? Yeah, well, you know, the, the first thing that anyone can do is look at themselves and ask themselves, are my everyday uh, purchases, my everyday uh, choices um, in alignment with my beliefs? And in a practical sense, that means moving towards a plant-based vegan diet. That's, that is the best way for us to, to live values of love and connection and um, compassionate treatment and care of others. Um, so that's number one. Number two is you can support organizations like Mercy for Animals that are working every day on the front lines um, to help these animals. You know, we are funded totally by donations by individuals. So if you're in a position to make a donation, it is one of the most powerful things that you can do. Um, these donations fund these undercover investigations. They fund work to change laws and policies and to inspire people to, to make changes um, that would help these animals. And, you know, looking at how you can use your own unique skills and talents and resources to help animals. You know, I don't believe that being an advocate is one size fits all. We are all unique. Um, we all have different personalities. We all have different skills. And I think to be a sustainable, effective advocate, we must find what the right fit is for us. And I give a few examples of people um, in the book who have found a unique voice. I talk about Leelani Munter, who's a vegan race car driver. 
and uses this platform to promote veganism to millions of NASCAR fans. I talk about a former Burger King executive who left that world to start a plant-based food company um, that now spares the lives of countless animals. I talk about Howard Lyman, who was a fifth-generation cattle rancher who became a vegan animal rights activist and speaks about his experience. So, you know, if you're a teacher, you can you can teach. If you're an artist, you can use your platform to inspire and inform. Um, you know, there, if you're a baker, you can make incredible foods that inspire people. There are just so many different ways um, to become an effective advocate that, you know, everyone needs to sort of do their own soul searching and, and find out what, what they believe uh, resonates most with them that can have the greatest impact. Mr. Nathan Runkle, founder and president of Mercy for Animals, also author of the book, Mercy for Animals, One Man's Quest to Inspire, Compassion, and Improve the Lives of Farm Animals. Go more about him by going to his website again, mercyforanimals.org. Um, Mr. Runkle, from the bottom of my heart, um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with us, and thank you so much for all the great work that you are doing. I uh, wholeheartedly believe in what you are doing, and uh, we will do everything we can to, to get your message out and, uh, you know, carry on this great mission of yours, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was my honor. Okay, everyone, that concludes tonight's edition of the Adult Limits of Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our two amazing guests, Mr. Nathan Runkle and Ms. Jane Velez-Mitchell. And special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Ms. Lisa Caza, and Ms. Constance Tellas. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Till the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care. Thank you so much for listening. Want to be heard or seen in front of millions of people? Want to be an expert on TV or radio? Goldman McCormick PR is a New York City-based public relations agency that specializes in traditional and social media placement for law, finance, media, and corporate-based clients. Goldman McCormick PR also are specialists in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training, and so much more. Check out GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com.